Alan Crane Productions in association with Emergent Life Studio presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 190 for Spring Semester 2024. Today, bonds and bond yields. This is sort of a finish up. I'm going to clean up some uh, work from last week and from a little before that and then carry it forward to this um, current chapter on bonds. Now, this is the last chapter before the midterm exam. I want to emphasize that on the final exam, uh, on, on midterm exam, on the midterm exam, I am not going to ask you any mathematical questions about bonds, bonds themselves, chapter 7. I ask some general questions, definitional questions, concept questions. Yeah, that's fair game, but I don't like having you have so little time to get it together with respect to calculating bond yields, bond prices, um, and all that kind of stuff. I really don't want to put you in that situation as we are getting that close to the final, uh, to the, why do I keep saying the final? I'm looking ahead uh, to the midterm exam. So this is what, what I do with bonds today and on Wednesday is entirely the, just, I'll show you the math, fine, but I will not hold you responsible for being able to do the math on the midterm exam. Want to emphasize that um, we do have a surprise quiz today, and that will begin at 10:35. So look forward to that. And uh, you should always consider these quizzes as mini preps, miniature <coughs> study guides for the midterm exam. So definitely, this one is right in that area. Oftentimes, and I will cover the midterm exam in the review next Monday, but always consider that those uh, quizzes. I, I'm sometimes I'm very lazy. I'll just copy a question from a quiz and I'll paste it into the exam uh, or just change the numbers. They're very similar, those quizzes are, to the way I ask and the questions I ask on the midterm exam. So always consider this, that there's a bright side to suffering through these quizzes. It makes you much stronger, and that's why I have such good scores on the midterm exams, is because I've prepped you for them. Enough of that. Let's have a look at the numbers. And we have on deck today a... a it's a bull day, but it is barely a bull day. It's a barely bull day, as it were. You can see that the Dow is up a lousy 0.15%. And uh, the Standard of Poor's, well, it's up 0.01%, performing more worse than the Dow. And the NASDAQ is also up, but a lousy 0.21%. And as you can see from the spark charts, everything started out happy today, but the spark charts are showing that the bears have sort of come back in in the last 10, 15 minutes, and they're really tearing up. They've dragged the S&P uh, 500 down from a good start into bear, almost negative territory. As a matter of fact, it looks like a dip negative there for a couple of minutes. But um, 
it's just not a good, happy day on the street right now, on Wall Street, on the street, we say. So we go over here and we have a look. Crude is in nice, right in its trading band there. I noticed the price of gasoline came up a little bit at the retail level, but it's nothing major. But the price of crude, you notice that it had been down through the night and into the early morning. And then it had a bit of a spike here in the last 10 minutes or so. It, well, it was actually about 20 minutes ago. It started running upward. And uh, I don't know what its thoughts are, but I, it's nothing to be concerned about unless there's something happening over in the Middle East I don't know about. Gold is taking a toilet break, which is good news because if gold is rising, that means that there are concerns about stocks and bonds. So we don't have that happening. Gold and silver are both down. Coming over here into the bonds, there you go. We, well, we've got a little bit of a spike in the yields. Okay, that would mean that there's something of a sell-off uh, in the bonds drives the price down and therefore that will cause the yields to rise. It's nothing much though. Two and a half basis points isn't anything at all. So right now bonds are kind of sitting very state kind of having a stable uh, period around two and a two and a quarter percent on the 10 year benchmark. So now remember that when I and I do this on purpose, remember that an interest rate or a yield, as it were, is going to have the risk-free rate, of course, plus the three, the default premium, the maturity premium, and the illiquidity premium. And of course, the risk-free rate has the real rate plus the expected inflation premium. Okay, with any tr okay, any interest rate is going to carry R sub F. They're all all interest rates will carry that one. Where the action happens on a given interest rate is in this risk premium, as we call it. Now, the default premium does not isn't part of a treasury of any kind. A three month a one-year, a 10-year, a 30-year. Default premium, you can ignore it. It's just not there. However, and of course, the illiquidity premium, you can sell any treasury debt instrument in a blink of an eye. They don't have any illiquidity. They are easily transferred to whatever other assets you want. The one that is interesting, though, so with government... Is there won't be any risk uh, default, risk of default, no risk of illiquidity, but this one is going to be there. It grows if the, as the time to maturity. So with a very short-term treasury bill, it has very little maturity premium. There's very little. Prob tiny probability that interest rates would shift on uh, the lender. However, as time goes on, that thing gets long. That thing begins to grow. A five-year treasury would have a bigger maturity premium than a four uh, than a uh, one-year. 
a 10-year would have a bigger maturity premium than a, um, than a uh, five-year. A 30-year would have a bigger maturity premium than any of those. Now, there's something interesting here going on because of maturity premium. Let's say 10-year maturity premium. That should be the same whether it's a government debt instrument or a corporate debt instrument. They should be the same because that <coughs> is a macroeconomic thing. So when we see this maturity premium right here, this will be shared by all debt instruments. Government, corporate, private, they'll all carry the same maturity premium. At least we hope they would. There's an interesting thing that we can do with the maturity premium, and I'm bringing that up in just a minute here. But let me make a point here. Um, suppose that I had a government yield, a 10-year T, no, treasury note, and its interest rate was, let's say, 4.50%. Now suppose we also, at the same moment, we had a AAA, very high grade, corporate note, 10 year note. And suppose that it was going off at 4.62%. Look over here. These two different debt instruments will carry the same risk-free rate. <coughs> They will carry the same illiquidity premium. They're both quickly, easily sold. You can get rid of a AAA in the blink of an eye. And they would also have the same maturity premium because they're both 10-year. The only difference between these two instruments would be that the government debt instrument would have no default premium but the corporate debt instrument would have a default premium. So in other words, if I look at it this way, and I'll put it in government, government, and the, the yield on the corporate, they'll have R sub F plus R sub D plus R sub M plus R sub I uh, illiquidity. The corporate, and we'll, the, the R sub F, I'll put it in here. The government default premium, the government, and the government. 
this would be the R sub D of the corporate plus the R sub M of the corporate and the R sub I L of the corporate. Now I'm going to subtract these upward. Well, these will be the same, so when I say this minus this, I'll get a zero. The R sub M's are the same, so that'll be a zero. And the illiquidity premiums will be a zero. The only difference will be this minus this, but this one is zero because there's no default premium. So in other words, the difference between them would be exclusively the default premium on the corporate debt. That would be the only difference between them. That would be the only thing that could change, that could make them different. We do this all the time because this tells us that the default premium on the corporate debt is 12 basis points. We know that. And we can track it. We can watch that default premium. If it moves upward, that's a bad sign for high quality uh, corporate debt. The markets are putting a higher default premium on it. If that number right there, that 12 basis points were to contract, we know that there is, this is good times. There's not, the markets are not putting as much of a default premium on high quality AAA corporate debt. So we can create a, a chart going through time to see a hidden whispering sentiment of the market about default probabilities. And we can do this for double A's, single A's, because, well, well, it gets a little bit tricky when you get below the A range because the illiquidity premium starts to fuzz it a little bit. You see what I mean? There wouldn't be that, the two illiquidity premiums subtracting, because uh, canceling each other out because they're the same. They wouldn't necessarily be the same if the corporate debt is of low enough quality. It might be a little harder to unload it very quickly. But in general, though, the more important point here is that this is a way that we can track the, the sentiments of the market about the probability of default in high-grade corporate instruments. And so this is, and it is used, it's used quite a bit to just keep an eye on what's going on in the market. Now what is it right now? It's been it's it's contracted a little bit, uh, maybe f down to the difference right now is maybe I th I think I saw point four eight uh, uh, it was forty eight basis points and it had contracted a little bit. This is a little bit extreme on this example. <laughs> it's usually a little bit more that default premium is, but I can look at the yield on a ten year corporate bond, a triple A corporate bond the yield on a 10-year treasury bond, 
and I can take the sub to subtract the two, and all that's going to be showing is the default premium on AAA corporate instruments. And then I can do it for double A's, and I can do it for single A's. And like I said, once you get down to the B range, then it gets a little bit, a little bit more speculative down there. But that's useful for us to know. Now there's another thing. that gets us into the fun part of this uh, lecture for today. That maturity premium on bonds. It should be about the same whether we're talking about treasury or corporate, the maturity premium for 10 years from one instrument to the other would be about the same. The maturity premium for a 20 year, for a five year. So taking that as our basis, taking that as our basis for this, There is an animal called the yield curve. Now I'm going to come over here and I think I've put this up for you to see. I'm going to have to check to see in your files folder in Canvas if it's there. But um, let me look at something here. Google. It's not saving the bookmarks that I want. It saves bookmarks that I'm not asking for, but let me do it this way. I'm just gonna write yield curve. Now the site here I'm going to use is US Department of the Treasury, par yield curves. And let me do something here. Uh, I want to do the time period for 2024. Now I want you to look at something. Look at, we usually, I mean we can look at this ultra short one month, but do you see how these are moving around and changing from one month to f six months to a year to two years to three years. That should be only the maturity premium. That should be only the maturity premium. Now it would be really great if I were able to show you what a normal yield curve looks like. A yield curve does nothing but take the maturities of a certain type of debt instrument against their yields. So on this axis would be time to maturity on the horizontal axis and on the vertical axis would be the yield of it. Now what should happen, what is normal to happen is that you have a nice pretty upward sloping curve. The maturity premium gets 
uh, greater the longer the maturity. It builds through time. That's what it should do. And it usually does that. Except that there is our times. Well, let me show you a couple here. This is the normal one. It swoops upward, pretty, very smooth, nice thing. Let me show you one that would be the end of the world. This one, you don't ever want to see this one. That's a de descending yield curve. That would be essentially the only way that could happen is if the, the hell of a, of a um, depression were com coming in. That would be about the only time you would see that. So we pretend that that one won't, we won't see that one in our lifetimes. However, there's a mini version of it. Now, every time we've seen what I'm about to show you, either a recession or a pause has happened. Usually a recession. Historically, this one has always predicted correctly a recession. Every recession has been preceded by an inverted yield curve. There's an inversion that happens somewhere in the maturities. Every recession has had an inverted yield curve before it. Occasionally, we've had uh, where we saw an inverted yield curve and it didn't lead to a full-blown recession. It just led to a place of flat economic growth. The economy slowed down, but it didn't go into negative territory for the two quarters that are required to count as a recession. So we did not, uh, we've seen that a few times, but an inverted yield curve is <laughs> always a warning shot that things are going to get bad. They could get really bad or they could get just a little bit bad. But an inverted yield curve has always warned us of a recession coming. I'll give you an example from my time as a, uh, an economic and finance uh, writer uh, back in the well, a little earlier days of the internet. Back in the early 2000s, well, I think I actually started it in 1999. I wrote a blog that was became very popular. It was called the Dark Wraith Forums. And I talked about economics. I did some little lessons in it and all that. It was in the earlier days of the internet as you know it today. Eventually, long after that, back in 2011, 2012, my uh, website was destroyed by hackers, and I suspect that they were from that scumbag group called Anonymous. <clears throat> I had said some bad things about them, and they attacked, and they wiped me out. They, they destroyed the backup servers and everything. However, you can still find my work on the Wayback Machine. Uh, the Wayback Machine is a website that can... F that archives everything that it has ever found on the web 
very cool, and I appreciate them for that. But anyway, <clears throat> in the 2000 period from about 2005, I started writing about difficulties that the economy was having that were not being discussed. Manufacturing uh, levels were sliding down to a third of what they had been in the Clinton administration, and the economy was having suffering severe, what were starting to be severe economic def uh, of, uh, treasury deficits. <coughs> we had been in treasury surpluses. In we had been closing the deficit all through the Clinton administration. And in 1997, I believe it was, we went into surpluses. First time in half a century, probably. We had actually had budget surpluses, one after the other after the other. And then, of course, we had some fun things happen. In 2001, during the early years of the Bush administration, first we had a uh, representation that we were going into a terrible recession, which we weren't. There was no there was no recession coming, but that gave the impetus for Congress to pass the longest, deepest tax cuts in American history up to that point. So we had deficits just returned big time, and then we had 9/11, which so we had a theater war start up in Iraq. And in Afghanistan, we had a pair of theater wars, so we were driving into major deficit territory. But by 2005, 2006, things were looking bad in the economy, and I was writing about it. Come about 2008, here's what the, here's what the yield curve was starting to look like. It was starting to look like it was starting to flatten. That's not an inverted yield curve. Technical inversion was not there in early 2008. By the time we got, I just kept writing about it, writing one article after another, because it was trying. Trying to flatten in the five to seven, five year to seven year maturity. In other words, the seven year was trying to go below the five, but it was not. It just kept hanging. And then uh, I can't recall what day in May it was. We had a technical inversion just briefly, and then it recovered. But that's all it takes. If it technically inverts, that's what has always led to a recession always been the predictor, not led to, but it's been the predictor of a recession. A even it's, it was a, like three basis points, the seven year was below the five year. And I called it, I just put it on my website. We have a technical inversion, we're going to go into a recession. Well, uh, uh, there were a couple of other analysts like me, and we were also talking about the insane uh, level, uh, situation with the uh, banks, the 10 largest banks in the world, nine of them, their, their financial statements, they were, they were gone, they were dead. And yet they just kept going on and for some reason we couldn't figure it out. Why these dead banks 
including Citigroup, Citibank, and BOA, and all of these others were corpses, according to their financial statements. Do what you guys can do now. But they kept going. So I said, this is a, these, we've got multiple crises coming down. We're going to have something bad happen. September 15th of 2008. That was the morning that the entire world almost came to a financial apocalypse. And I'll bet you don't know about it. It started out um, on the East Coast. As soon as the banks started opening, vast sums of money were being withdrawn from the money market accounts along the East Coast. It was just staggering uh, along the lines of several billion dollars in each of the withdrawals. We couldn't figure out where they were going. They were going into shadow accounts and dark accounts, but we figured where they would end up, we would just look for something that was spiking in price. Gold, silver, oil, something would be where those funds were going. Couldn't find any price spikes anywhere in the world's financial system. It was vanishing. By 10 o'clock, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors had, had called an emergency meeting to their analysts, their tech people, were the ones who watched the world situation. Where is this money going? Who is withdrawing this? We didn't have the financial disclosures in place then that we have now. What the hell is going on? Well, by that time, at 10 o'clock, $550 billion had been withdrawn from the money markets along the East Coast and then along the uh, Midwest. The Federal Reserve put an immediate lockdown on withdrawals from money markets. They said no more withdrawals. They ordered the banking system to stop letting money be withdrawn. If they had not, by noon, we would have had, uh, we would have, it would have been over. The illiquidity, the banks would have had no money to uh, honor your paychecks, your cards at the store, or anything. It would have been gone. But the Fed got in front of it on uh, pretty well, amazingly. And then later that little afternoon, Congress was called into an emergency session. And it was the doors were <coughs> closed and locked. It was a secret session. They called the Treasury secretary, the Federal Reserve chairman at the time, and a bunch of others to find out from them what was going on. At one point, a, a um, representative of, at the time, kind of a cra crazy guy, but he was right, he asked uh, the secretary, rather the uh, uh, speaker of the house, who was Nancy Pelosi at the time, he said, Madam uh, Chairman, or Ma Madam Chairman, are we under martial law? And she just walked away from the podium. No, we weren't, but Congress was. They had uh, U.S. Marshals outside the doors to keep the people from going out until they solved it, until they answered the question, what's going on here? There were some members of Congress who saw this. They said, I smell a rat. 
they were the ones who believed that 9-11 was a conspiracy. And they said, this is another conspiracy. You're taking, not only have you now taken away our privacy, now you're taking away our banking system. Yeah, you know, you get that kind of stuff. But one way or the other, yeah, we went into a hell of a recession. We call it the Great Recession. It was the worst one since the Great Depression. And uh, a few of us called it. We saw it coming. We didn't. We thought it was going to be bad for other reasons. The collapse of the banking system because of its internal uh, rot. What we didn't know at that time, and we found it out by accident in 2011, there was a lawsuit, Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, that was filed by a media group uh, against the um, U.S. Treasury. And they accidentally released the a memo that included in it what was really going on with the banks. The banks were being kept alive by back-channel money that was being fed to them through the Treasury and the Fed to the tune of trillions of dollars. We didn't know it. It wasn't on the financial statements. The SEC was involved in it. They knew it was there. Those financial statements were a lie and because that they did not include that backdoor money. At the time, the uh, federal judge, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury joined the banks in asking the uh, federal district judge in Washington, D.C. to quash that memorandum and not allow it into, into evidence. To her credit, that federal judge said, go to hell, everyone needs to see this. So it was released and no one cared. At this point, how much money? We can only guess because it's still a secret. Probably on the order of 35 to 45 trillion dollars is being funneled into those banks back door. And the SEC lets it go. So they were like repos that they had to come back? Or just no, it was money. It was just literally, that's something we don't know. We, we got the memo. We saw what was going on. We could backtrack and figure out how much had gone in, but we don't know the mechanisms by which it was going in. We know how much it was. Was it, was it just trucks driving up? Was it some kind of repo set, uh, set up? It was certainly not open market operations. We would have seen those a mile away. But, you know, there you go. So, as much as you can trust the SEC and disclosures and all of that. When it comes to banks, none of us. I was one of those idiots in 2008 who was screaming bloody murder, sell your bank stocks, they're gonna to go to hell. There were other investment analysts who were saying the same thing. We looked like idiots because the banks didn't collapse. It was only in 2011 that we found out that we were idiots because we didn't think. How could those banks still be alive if they're in this bad of shape? I was going to say, can't they not collapse because they would always get bailed out? Well, that's just it. This is the largest bailout in human history, in, in the history of civilizations. But that's just the way it is. Now, getting back to this story here. Going back to the yield curves, I'm just sharing that with you as the intrigue that goes behind what we deal with in the, in the world of finance. We can't always believe what our lying eyes are telling us 
but we have to rely on it anyway. And here's the kicker. You are living in a very strange, I mean a strange-ass time. Let me take you back to the time period 2023. Apply. Look at this. That's not just a, an inverted yield curve. <coughs> That's an inverted yield curve from hell. These numbers should be going up, up, up. But right here, you see <coughs> from the six months to the one year, you see from the one year to the two year, two year to the three year, three year to the five, the seven, the uh, ten, the thing is inverted not across two. It's, a, it's basically that yield curve at the beginning of 2023, and it actually was before that. The longest inversion of a yield curve any of us have ever seen. Of course, we're all, we were all saying, oh, recession, oh my God, OMG. We didn't go into one the first time. We didn't even go to zero GDP. Now, a recession is technically, again, two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. We, it didn't happen. And now, let's go here. This thing has been inverted. Let's go to 2024. Let's go to uh, the one from yesterday. Look at that son of a bitch. It's still inverted. And it's still inverted way out there. That should be a recession coming within six months. That's about six to nine months about for a recession to hit after an inversion, a technical inversion of a yield curve. It's not happening. How in the hell the economy hasn't dodged a bullet. It's dodged a nuke. It, and it just keeps going along like do, do, do. now we're talking about the economic recovery is underway and all this. How? An inverted yield curve never has done, uh, had this happen. Yeah? Government spending is not that not that significant. The budget deficits have been getting controlled, even with bad tax rates. And the Fed certainly isn't printing money to feed the economy, to make it feel good, like chicken soup when you have a, the flu. This is something else. It is the first time, and you are actually coming into your professional lives in something that, and there's argument, well, why is this? Now, why not in a, another inverted yield curve period of time in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s? It's never happened before that we've had a, an inverted yield curve and it did not lead to a recession. It's never before happened that we have had a yield curve that had that much of a distance going down in the yields. How? You got me. I mean, it's you can see it right there. See the inverted yield curve? Even now, you saw what it was. It's still inverted clear out here to where it was at the beginning of 2023. It's inverted clear out to the 20-year. 
and it shouldn't be the, we shouldn't have an economy doing as well as we do. It's not a fantastic economy, but it is sure a decent economy. If we were, we've been in an economic recovery long enough that I would argue that we're now in a full-blown economic expansion, and yet here we are with an inverted yield curve. Mm. So there you are. That's a little of the history of yield curves and near apocalyptic situations in the country. Yeah. That's above my pay grade. I'm just a stupid old school, uh, old school professor. I let other people worry about this. There, is a, there are different theories uh, or different hypotheses, I should say. But none of them really are satisfactory, although a couple, you see, as I had said before, the Federal Reserve has a lot of different ways. When we hear that the money supply was being contracted, there are a couple of tricks that can be done, the Fed can do, to actually pump money into an economy, but at the same time, it looks like they're contracting the money supply. Maybe. My good teaching assistant remembers, probably not too happily, the whole thing with repos and reverse repos. How the government can sell treasuries to banks, which makes them less liquid. But they are also, at the same time, promising that they will buy those treasuries back in one, two, five days, something like that. So that it looks like money is disappearing from the banks, but it's flipping right back around. And then the next day they do it, so that there's this constant bladder of money in the system flowing both ways. And if you use the right balance between the buys and the sells, you can actually expand the money supply but it looks like through your plain old open market operations, you're contracting the money supply. But that should not have been good for inflation. And yet we have won, at least for now, the battle against inflation. So you might want to stick to some other world other than the theoretical side of it, because right now, we are in a period we've never seen before, and that's where you guys come in. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about all of this. But first, I need to show you something. I, that last Excel sheet that I did, I have now upgraded it again for you, my good students. It does a calculation for you now that I should have shown you. Usually, I do this at this point. But I realized that there were some questions in the book that kind of, you should have known this, you should know this, and they covered it in the book. But I'm going to give you, I have in the Excel sheet now, something that will do this for you. It has to do with yields and returns. Now, when I said, as I said if, uh, maybe a week or two ago, yield and return and rate interest rate. They're all different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, the yield on a uh, bond, uh, the return on a stock, the interest rate on a loan, those are all the same thing. They're interest rates. But we use different words for different kinds. 
Now let me show you a stupid pet trick. This is a simple one. But to, set, to do this, I have to make sure you understand that we need a common unit of measure for rates, yields, uh, returns. We do, the common denominator <laughs> is the annualized. We make everything annualized. So that in, uh, you, you pay $100 and in one year, you make, you've got $110. Well, that would be 10%. The holding period was one year, so that would be a 10, a holding, a, that would be an annualized rate right there. But this young gentleman, he put in $100 and he pulled uh, it out after six months and he had 110. So his, return on an annualized basis isn't the same as yours. But it's not quite just 10% times two because of the compounding phenomenon. Remember, finding present values is discounting, finding future values is compounding. So we need to put everything into annualized terms. And the formula to do that is you take the ending value over the beginning value and you raise it to 1 over the number of years and then you subtract 1. <clears throat> now that's fine if you have whole numbers of years. So you invest $200 and in Three years, you have $225. Now, just your plain old holding period return. The holding period return doesn't care about annualization. Holding period return, all you do is take 225 divided by 200 dollars minus one. That's the HPR, the holding period return. Doesn't matter how what what the period is. That's just a raw measure. And that's not hard to do. You can whip that out on a calculator any old day of the week. If I can find a stupid calc well let me use the TI just to have it up there. Clear. So I would take 225, whoops, 225 divided by 200 minus 1. So my HPR is 12.5%. But that doesn't do us much good if we want to compare that to an investment that was not that number of years. So the way we annualize it is with that formula up there. <coughs> the annualized return, the APR as it were, is um, 
Let me think. Let me think. 225 over 200 to the 1 over 2 or 1 over 3. That turns it into an annualized rate using the geometric mean. Now, some people would say, well, why don't you just take 12 and a half divided by 3? That would be what's called an arithmetic mean, not a geometric mean. We use a geometric almost always. So in this case, open parenthesis, 225 divided by 200, close the parentheses, and raise that, open parenthesis, 1 divided by 3 close the parenthesis. Minus 1. Don't forget the minus 1. For I'm always forgetting minus 1 and then I'm getting a wrong number. So it's actually 4%. Okay? You notice that it's less than if you had taken 12.5% divided by 3. A little less. Here's where it gets to be a pain in the ass. It's when you have fractions of years. Okay? Or days. You have to turn days into years. And so, in your Excel sheet, I have added another worksheet. The one, uh, present values and future values. I've added another worksheet, annualizing. Because technically, in order, if you have days, if you have days, what you would have to do is take end ending value over the beginning value and raise that to the 1 over the number of days over 365. And that thing down there in parenthesis minus 1. You have to turn the number of days into years. So I've created an Excel spreadsheet that does years if all you need is years. But it also does days if you're, if you're given the number of days. So in this one, I could take that 200 initial investment, take it to 225 for three years, and I'll show you how this trick, if you don't know that trick, you get your 4% that I got with the calculator. But what happens if you put in $500 and in uh, you come out with $538 after, let's say, 525 days? So this will turn it into days. 
th this one you can use for days. Now, how do you get the days? I may put one other in there. There are a couple of ways. Excel has a days between dates so that you could actually take the dates and figure out the number of days from the dates. You could do it that way. Calculators can do it. I mean, even on Google, that you can, uh, there's a calculator you can pull up there <coughs> that will find the number of days between two dates. But one way or the other, this simplifies that calculation just a lot and makes you a much happier person. But this will help you with calculating annualized yields. Now remember that those yield curves that I showed you, those are all annualized yields. You saw those 4.86 for a, for a five year or something like that, 8.6%. That is annualized one over five. The 10 year is the annualized one over 10. So they're doing in all of those and in almost anything you will see, they won't be talking about HPRs. They'll be talking about annualized yields, annualized returns, annualized everything so that we can compare everything like we do in those yield curves. But this is up there now and it's, it's <coughs> nice to have it because then you can look at, well, I made a trade of, for example, I did a trade where I um, put in $230, I think it was. 12 days later, I came out with $246. So in that one, I had, I'm thinking I, I put in $230. And then 12 days later, I, I got out of the position and I had $245 for 12 days. That's a darn nice return. You could do that. Of course, you'd also get the ones that are negative in there. I put in $230 and I came out with $205 eight days later. But this way, you can track all of your returns, regardless of the holding period, against each other in terms of their annualized <coughs> performance. Just something for you to use. Now, you have a quiz to do right now.